Welcome again. It is Palm Sunday. I love liturgical calendars, and I love that it is Palm Sunday. So, last week we actually taught Palm Sunday to the kids. Kids, don't worry, we're leaving. But before we leave, uh, we're going to talk about what we talked about last week, which is why was it so important that Jesus entered the city this way? And you guys will, will talk about what actually happened in a second. In God's kingdom, everything is turned upside down. In the world that we live in right now, what makes us do stuff? Force, fear. That's what drives us to do things. And a lot of the time we come to each other and we say, I'll give you a knuckle sandwich unless you do what I say. There's always this backing of force. People who love are actually held down. They're considered weak. They're considered soft. They're considered all of these things. God turns everything and so now in this already but not yet kingdom that we live in, God's turned everything upside down. It's not force that makes people do things. It's love. Love is the motivation for all things. Love is the reason for, it's, it's the, our rules of engagement. How do we connect with one another? It's not through violence. It's not through war. It's through love. And so we see in all of Jesus' stories that this is happening. God's turned everything upside down. People who are sad, people who are grieving, people who have lost something can be happy in this kingdom. People who are sick, people who are struggling, people who have something debilitating that's keeping them down, they can be healed. People who are hungry for food, for love, for companionship, they can be filled. And people who died can come back to life. This is what the kingdom of God is. And so when we teach this to our kids, we don't really talk much about personal salvation, even though it's really a driving force within evangelicalism. It wasn't, when I, as I grew up as a Catholic, it wasn't really something that we talked about much. But personal salvation is not something we discuss. It's part of all of this. But our focus is on the kingdom of God and how Jesus is bringing that around. If you look in scripture, you'll see that God, Jesus mentions the kingdom of God 10 to 1 versus personal salvation. It really is the gospel. And so we are encouraging our kids to see themselves as members of this kingdom where we live by love, love God, love your neighbor, and we allow ourselves to be loved. So why do we enter this way? It's because Jesus entered to signify that he's a king, to signify that he's coming in this way. Now, everyone saw that, but now the question was, what kind of king would he be? Would he be a king that ruled according to the kingdom of this world, which is by force, by driving, by pushing, by violence? Or is he a king that's going to sacrifice? A king that's going to show that love is really what makes the world go around. So, are we... So Jesus and his disciples were coming into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover together, as is their want. And Jesus was outside the city of Beth, or the, the town of Bethphage, and he told two of his disciples, hey, can you guys go and get a donkey and a colt? It's inside the city. And if anybody asks why you're taking it, say, the Lord has need of them. And so the two disciples went in, and it was just as Jesus said, and they arrived, and they got the two donkeys. Now, they brought the donkeys over to Jesus. Jesus got in on top of the don one of the donkeys or the colts, so Jesse wants to jump in here. 
And kids, kids, can you guys come over here, please? Kids, bring your palms. Adults, stand up. All right, kids, if you've got your palms, come on over. Good job. All right, we have to make sure that Jesse slash Jesus, riding his donkey, gets to where he needs to go as he enters Jerusalem. And so as they enter Jerusalem, people put their cloaks on the ground, and they put their palms on the ground, and they wave palms in the air, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. <laughs> Yay! All right, go follow Pastor Mark. Oh, no sword fighting with the palms. Just, uh, there you go. Good job. <laughs> go follow Pastor Mark. Good job, everybody. Yay. Thanks, everybody. Um, so just so you know how amazing our executive director is, she called several petting zoos all week trying to get a donkey um, so we could really have a lot of fun and provide some donkey rides. And the, um, apparently Palm Sunday, there's a run on donkeys. And so there was like the price point was basically like, would you like to go to Disneyland for an entire day or ride a donkey one time? And we're like, well, we'll just have a wagon. So that was the that was the end result of that. But next week, there will be a petting zoo, and there will be nothing to ride but really fun things, including um, apparently, so one of our options was miniature cow. And I was like, what is that? So I Googled and then went, ooh! And so... That's coming because <laughs> Debbie's laughing really hard. She's like, what do you do? I'm like, look at what a miniature cow. I don't know if it's going to look like the one that was in the Google image search, but if it's anything close, we're in for a treat. So next week, come and join us for a fun celebration for Easter and our wonderful petting zoo and miniature cow options. All right, let's get ready to worship God through the study of the word, and we will um, continue our service together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this opportunity to come together to reflect on events of 2,000 years ago, to consider, again, the story of how you came and how you came into Jerusalem and how you continue to lead and come into our hearts and in our world. We pray right now that through the power of your Holy Spirit, um, we would be drawn closer to you and drawn closer to one another through the study of your word, and that we would glorify you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We're going to jump on in. Okay, who grew up in a church where Palm Sundays, what happened, and where palms were handed out? Anybody? Some of us. Very nice. Me too. So I grew up in a Lutheran church, and you would get these, and then you had to, the nice like palm, sun, palm stick. And did you guys ever figure out how to, did you do this as a kid? Did you make, yeah, okay, cool, very nice. I loved Palm Sunday. Growing up, Palm Sunday, if you asked me as a kid, what my favorite holiday was, I was going to say Palm Sunday. So that's kind of weird, huh? Indicator of the continued weirdness in my life. So the reason why I loved it so was because in my church, I grew up in an evangelical Lutheran church of America, which was not so evangelical um, in terms of our current definition. But the ELCA Church of America um, up in Northern California in Bethlehem, and when it was Ash Wednesday, which was the beginning of the 40 days prior to Easter Sunday. So 40-day period, which we call Lent. We sort of prepare your hearts and your minds for all of the season and for upcoming now Passion Week coming up. We call it this week coming up. 
in my church, once Lent started, you were not allowed to on Sunday ever sing a hymn or a song that sounded celebratory for the 40 days. So it was like preparing your heart, a time of sort of giving things up. So Hosanna and Hallelujah songs, those were like cut from the hymnal for those 40 days. And I didn't know that as a kid, but I sensed it. So when Palm Sunday happened, it was like party because all of a sudden you would show up and people had giant palm fronds much larger than these and they'd be waving them and very excited and the whole place would be decorated and everybody would be greeting one another with the hosanna 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 in the highest you know all of this kind of thing right so i loved palm sunday growing up as we continue to see christians today worshiping palm sunday here's what it looks like in jerusalem when it's not covid um, coming down, pilgrims from all over the world coming down from the Mount of Olives and singing songs in all languages and celebrating Palm Sunday. It gets nice and crowded and dense coming down that same sort of route that Jesus took. And it's really a beautiful time in the old city. And this morning, this is a, a screenshot from this Palm Sunday, like right now, happening. And this is in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And the... Um, Leaders in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is, sorry, the one of the oldest locations now inside the walls of the current old city, um, but it was outside the walls of the city of Jesus's day, and it's the place that is likely the place of the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. So the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, these people leading today said, this is amazing. After two years of not being able to gather, of not being able to have services, in Palm Sunday, they said, it feels like a resurrection. And that's the kind of feeling I had growing up, even though we were still started. It was sort of the start now of what was going to be a very somber week going forward up until next Easter Sunday. It felt like resurrection had happened with this advent of Jesus entering in. This is a slide, by the way, beautiful of what happened in Bethlehem. Um, is that so lovely? In Bethlehem, there's this beautiful church in the nativity, and they were able to gather today in what is... Um, occupied territory of the West Bank and you can go and see the Christian life that is still happening there in Bethlehem and beautiful and the pilgrims and I don't know if you can tell but they have olive branches as well as palm branches and all of these branches are coming together and people are starting to come just like where our little mini play right here with the palms laid down and everything else it's celebratory and it's exciting and it's hope-filled as we think about Jesus entering in now, we're starting a new series here at Spark, which is going to be on the Gospel of John. We're going to be focusing on the radical nature of Jesus's love. And we're going to really launch that series in about three weeks. Today's Palm Sunday and next week is Easter Sunday. And we're going to focus in on those particular narratives as John tells them, as well as looking at some of the other Gospels. So let's look at John 11 really briefly together. This is not the Palm Sunday story yet, but it's setting up the stage. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And as a result of this, this incredible miracle that has happened, and if you can read the story, it's really moving, people are now a little bit uncomfortable with Jesus. Now, they've been uncomfortable this whole time, but the events that happen is that many people start to believe in Jesus as a result of this resurrection miracle with Lazarus. Many people start to get afraid of him. There's like this line in John was like, look, everybody's going after him. What is happening now? They are afraid of him. He's coming into some power and influence. And so they start to plot to take his life. 
And it happens right after this miracle of resurrection, of bringing life, that they start to plot to break this life again, to, to plot to take his life. Now, Mary then anoints Jesus with oil, again, in sort of anticipation of his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. And this is where we're going to walk into now John chapter 12. The next day, after her anointing, the next day, the great crowd that had come to the Passover festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. This is a, a framing, a, a euphemism for Jerusalem. Look, your king is com coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So really exciting and wonderful and all of those feelings that I had growing up and all of the feelings that are there present in Jerusalem today and in Bethlehem and around the world as people gather to celebrate this arrival of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. But as you've already come to know here at Spark, there's a little bit more to the story than maybe we've often read or interpreted. And so I'd like to illuminate some of those cultural keys and backgrounds and shifts for us as we kind of look for and say what else might be happening and why are people so mad and what are people afraid of and what is occurring in this set so we're going to set the stage now remember that in jesus's day in first century judea and galilee that people have scripture soaked minds which means that if you were to say um mention a particular type of bird that is mentioned in the Bible, that the people in the audience around you could go, I know that bird, and here are the 13 to 15 Bible verses that reference that bird, and I can tell them to you in order. So you can do that, right? You guys, we are all cool. Okay, so scripture-soaked minds means that these are communities that studied the text every Shabbat, that studied it every single time throughout their school, that if they wanted to learn math, they studied that through Shabbat, like how many fathers plus how many mothers, three fathers of Israel, four mothers of Israel. Okay, so that would equal seven days of creation, right? So you, you all of everything that you see in your world, everything that you hear, that you see, that you test, that you taste, all of that has to do and has context to this narrative, this ancient narrative that you've been reading. Now, remember what the festival is. When is Jesus going in? What festival is approaching as he enters into Jerusalem? Passover. Good job. Well done. Passover. What is Passover remembering? It's not a trick question. You guys all know it. The exodus out of Egypt. Good job. Okay. So long before Jesus is there, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. When they were enslaved in Egypt, Pharaoh, which is just a word that means king, the bad king there did not remember Joseph or Joseph's ancestors. There had been slavery for 400 years. And then Moses has this incredible experience with a burning bush that's not being burnt up. And he goes and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship. Let God's people go so that they may worship God, right? And eventually, after 10 chances and Pharaoh making his heart heavy, 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 um, which is a really fun, interesting story. Um, after that, then, Pharaoh finally relents and lets them go after this night of Passover. Do you remember what happens at Passover? The firstborn son in every family and also of the animals will die. 
unless they have the blood of the lamb posted over the lintel frame of their doors. Okay, And then if they do, then God passes over that house and no death comes to that house. Um, as an aside, I was just in the Egyptian Museum in San Jose for like the first time ever. And how did I go all the way to Egypt to study Egyptology? And I didn't just go to San Jose. Um, so the museum's amazing. I saw that there are lintels there that they have maintained. And there's photos of them that are um, remembering the different gods of Egypt. And I just thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. I wonder if there's something about just curiosity. I wonder why. The, I've always wondered why the lintel. Maybe there's something about who is God and who is not. So God's spirit passed over the Israelites' house. They were, sa- they were saved, and Pharaoh relents. And so Passover becomes a festival of freedom. So as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, he's entering in for a Passover festival, the festival of unleavened bread. You'll remember they had to leave Egypt in such haste that they didn't have time for their bread to rise. And so they are getting ready. Now, in the Bible, it says that everyone who is a follower of God has to be in the place where God puts God's name, which is Jerusalem, for the festival of unleavened bread. So all of religious, everyone who's capable and able and has means would scrimp and get there to be able for this, to be able to attend and be in Jerusalem for the festival. You would try to find places to stay, figure things out. By the way, where is Jesus staying with his disciples? I mean, right now at this point, he's at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house, but after that, he's going to be staying on the Mount of Olives. He's probably in a cave, probably in like an olive press. Some place. There's a whole bunch of them right there on the Mount of Olives because it would have been expensive. You know when you try to like uh, go to a town that's hosting the Super Bowl? It's all the prices go up, right? So this is a huge, massive event. Josephus says crazy things like millions of people showed up, but he's probably not wrong. He said there were so many sacrifices that were happening in the temple as a result of all the pilgrims coming that the Kidron Valley ran with blood. So all of this preparation is happening as Jesus walks in on the Festival of Freedom. Now, when Jesus enters in on the day that we now call Palm Sunday, it was actually Lamb Selection Day. Let's read from Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So you actually had to go and have a lamb, pick out a lamb, have it live with you for the week, and then that would be your Passover offering. And yes, if that's already upsetting to you, that's totally fine. I would be upset by that, right? Like you just, your kids have named it at this point. Like, did you're like, don't name it, don't name it. Like, we're naming the lamb. It's so cute. You'll see when the petting zoo comes next week. You're not gonna be like, none of us. You're gonna be. I'm so glad we're not in the sacrificial system anymore, right? Like, we've just moved on. We're not gonna be doing that anymore. So you lived with this lamb. Now, do you think then that it's accidental that Jesus enters in to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover on Lamb Selection Day? I'm going to say no. I don't think that's an accident. And you can read at the very beginning of John when John's like sees Jesus walking by. And he's like, John the Baptist sees Jesus walking by. And he's like, oh, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We'll talk about it next week. So in this context, then, all the people start grabbing palm branches, waving them and shouting, Hosanna. Why palm branches? Does anybody know? 
why are the people using seasonal elements that belong to the autumn rites of the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, especially these palms, when it's actually springtime with the Passover celebration of liberation and political and religious oppression? Why are people using palm branches? Why not just grab any branch? Why not grab a fig tree branch? Why not grab an olive tree branch? Why palm branches? Well, let's set the stage. Just before the time of Jesus in 175 to 164 BCE, there was a terrible king named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He was horrible. He was not Judean. He was not an Israelite. He was not Galilean. He was a Seleucid and from the north. And as he came in and he took hold of the land of Israel, he ordered extreme taxes on all of the Judeans and the Galileans. They had to give one third of their grain. They had to give half of their fruit. How would you guys feel about that? You're trying to eke out a living, feed your children, one third of all your grain, half of your fruit you have to go give to this evil king. He appointed Hellenized Jews, so like Greek-speaking Jews, as high priest. And the first priest that he appointed was a guy named Jason. That does not sound like one of the sons of Abraham, okay? So that's a problem right away. It's like, hey, you, Jason, yeah, the guy who speaks Greek, how about you be the high priest? What's the problem immediately with that? Who's supposed to be high priest? Somebody from the line of Aaron, right? Moses' brother. You can't just pick. You can't be born into this. You can't just pick some guy named Jason. And then he plundered the temple in 169 BCE. And at that point, people really hated this guy. There were false rumors of his death that went around in 168 BCE. And so all of the Judeans started to celebrate. Like, woohoo, that guy's dead. He was not dead. And he did not appreciate the party that they threw. So he goes then into the temple of Jerusalem, which you have to recognize it's not you know, in the ancient Near East, they didn't have banks. There were no banks. There's not like the first bank of such and such street in Jerusalem, right? The temple is the bank. So every time anything gets raided, you're not just talking about things that are deeply important to you from a ritual perspective or worship perspective. You're talking about the wealth of the nation being raided. So he goes in, he has already done all of that. And in 167 BC, he's so mad at the Judeans. He's like, these... These Hebrews, man, they are tough. So he erects a statue of Zeus in the temple, sacrifices a pig. Oh my gosh, right? That's not okay. And forbids the Sabbath. He forbids keeping kosher. He forbids all of these festivals. And he forbids circumcision. And he forbids the study of Torah. Do we like this guy? No, we do not. He is a bad guy. So enter the Maccabees, which is kind of like a word that means hammer. This family, this Hasmonean family comes in and the revolt begins. All of these terrible things that Antiochus Epiphanes does, they just hate this guy. So they revolt against him in 167 BCE and he dies. They cleanse the temple. The temple is rededicated in 164 BCE. And that is the event that we call Hanukkah, which just means the feast of festival of dedication. And it's mentioned that Jesus goes to Jerusalem for this festival in the Gospel of John. In the book of 2 Maccabees, which we have thanks to our Catholic sisters and brothers, um, it says this in 2 Maccabees chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. Now, on the same day that the strangers, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, profaned the temple, and on the very same day it was cleansed again, they kept eight days with gladness as in the Feast of the Tabernacles. What time of year do we celebrate Hanukkah? December, right. But then something has gone wrong. 
So all of ancient Israel was supposed to always be in Jerusalem celebrating, the Israelites celebrating for the festival of unleavened bread, for Shavuot, and also for the Feast of Tabernacles. But that horrible dude was in there and he had done terrible things to our temple. We could not celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles of Sukkot when we gather all the palm branches and we get together and we shake them and we pray for rain. If you have some in your hand, you can shake and it sounds like rain. Earlier today, I was watching the video of what was happening in the Holy Sepulchre and they were all shaking the palm branches and it sounds, it sounds like rain. So the Maccabeans, after they cleansed the temple in that December, in that this Feast of Dedication, they were like, you know what? We should probably still keep the Festival of Tabernacles and of Sukkot, even though the timing's off, because we really need rain. And if it doesn't rain, we're in deep trouble. So let's also grab all of our palm branches and shake them and we're going to sort of like celebrate it late. Okay, sort of like if you uh, missed the wedding at Vegas, but then you wanted to have a ceremony later for all of your family. And so you sort of reenacted it. So even though it's passed, right, you still have to. So that's what they're doing. So Hanukkah became a time of intense rededication and dedication of the temple, cleansing the temple and of great national pride. And so as a result, the symbol of the palm branch became a symbol of the Maccabean revolt. And it became a symbol that said, yes, let's get these horrible, non-God-fearing dudes out and let's get ourselves in. They made coins after this. The Maccabean and the Hasmonean community had coins with palm trees on them. We see those images all throughout. It's kind of like an American flag at 4th of July. It becomes an independent symbol for the community. Does that make sense? Cool? All right. So in the meantime, then, the Hasmoneans, the Maccabeans, Judea, the Israelites have self-rule for a time. But then two of the sons decide to fight because that's what they do. And the, the dad dies. And then the mom, Queen Salome, who's awesome, she rules for a while. But then after she dies, her sons fight. And then Pompey, who is a good Roman pirate, you always need a pirate involved in all the good stories. Do you know there's pirates in your, okay, in your biblical story? Great. He's like, oh, look, there is disruption happening in the land. I will go and make use of that. So he gets involved in the Jewish civil war. And that war between the Pharisees and Sadducees starts. And then Hyrcanus gets involved. Pompey goes in, sacks Jerusalem in 63 BC. And he makes Hyrcanus the high priest. But he's not from the line of Aaron. And now Rome is really in charge. Everybody else that's there is just there because Rome lets them. So when Jesus enters in to Jerusalem, Rome is in charge. Rome is completely in charge. They make the high priest check out the clothes in the morning and turn them back in at night. They're in charge of who gets to do oh, guess who gets to be the high priest? It's just like today. Whoever pays the most money in the political sphere gets to be that. We have Caesar now, who is the Roman leader, who is saying, oh, by the way, I don't know if you knew this, but I am not just the high, I'm not just Caesar, but I'm also high priest, and I'm also going to call myself the divine son of God. How do you think the observant Israelites felt about this happening again in their temple? Rome is completely in charge, and Rome is the new oppressor. And so now we have this cry of freedom starting on Mount of Olives as all of these people start to see this Jesus guy who's been raising the dead 
start to come down over the Mount of Olives approaching towards Jerusalem. And Rome knows. Look, do you see this? That's the view from the top of the Mount of Olives. You can see where the Dome of the Rock is today, where that big, beautiful golden dome is. That would have been where the temple stood of Jesus' day. This is the platform that Herod built. But over where that arrow is, looking down into that temple platform is where Rome built a very nice tall tower so they could look down at all these Jewish pilgrims and keep watch and make sure that they weren't getting any smart ideas that they were getting all the time to try to overthrow Rome. In fact, this area was so well known for these messianic movements and uprising because everybody was going to come from the Mount of Olives down towards and into the Eastern Gate. So I don't know if you can tell, the Eastern Gate is right underneath that black arrow in the wall. And it was such an issue that Suleiman the Magnificent in 1500s, he closed over the gate. Because he was like, let's just make sure that no Messiah ever comes through that gate again. right? Because it was so prophesied that the Messiah was going to come from the east and come down off the Mount of Olives and into Jerusalem through that gate. So let's just seal it over. Now it's sealed over today. By the way, the gate of Jesus' day is under that, under, under the ground, because they kind of built it up, but he was still like not taking any chances, so he sealed it over. So now this cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, starts echoing from the top of the Mount of Olives with all of these people seeing Jesus coming on in. They take the palm branches, a nationalistic symbol, declaring their independence, like 4th of July, they go out to meet Jesus shouting, Hoshana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So not Herod, not Caesar, this dude on a donkey. This guy we're seeing as king. Now, where do they even get this word, this Hosanna, Hoshana, save us? It means save us. We beseech you. It comes out of Psalm 118, which is one of the pilgrimage psalms people would sing. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Rome hears this. Hoshana, save please. And that provocative impact of those cries of help accompanied by the palm waving would call to mind that Maccabean deliverance two centuries earlier and a powerful appeal calculated to incite the oppressed and alarm the oppressors. And that is the cry. The cry Hoshana means help please. And first, as they are saying it, they're addressing it to Jesus from Nazareth as the Messiah. And they're also addressing it to God, the Most High. And it is religiously and politically provocative to both Jews and the Roman rulers, especially at Passover, especially at the time when they're celebrating the great rescue of the past and the hope and the present liberation from Roman rule. Hoshana, save please. When I was growing up, I just thought it was a nice thing to say to Jesus on a Sunday after we had not been very excited for 40 days. I didn't realize that it had all of this connotation and it was so connected to a nationalistic movement and hope. Now, as Jesus starts coming down, this is from Luke 19. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem and he hears all these cries and he sees the city, he weeps over it and said, if only you had known on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. Why does Jesus weep? What breaks his heart? Is it just that he can see into the future and knows that by 70 CE, the temple will be destroyed? Is it just that he's future telling? Or is it that there's something in the moment that is breaking his heart? 
There's even a church there, the Church of Dominus Flivet. It's one of my favorite places to go. And I don't go in many churches in Israel just because I'm only talking about the biblical period. And I don't know if you know this, but Jesus didn't go to church. So um, I don't go to a lot of them. But this church is one of my favorites because it's shaped like a teardrop. And it remembers this place where Jesus wept. As you come down the Mount of Olives and inside the church itself, you can sit and you can see it's, it's darkened inside. It's kind of got a, a somber feel. And remember, why was it that Jesus wept so? What is it that's causing him such heartbreak here? I think we're going to learn a lot of Jesus's, of the nature of Jesus's kingship because of how he enters Jerusalem and because of what breaks his heart. So let's look at one more clue. It says in John 12 that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And you can hear in the Gospels, it's like, was it a donkey? Is it a pony? Is it a colt? Is it how many? And all the things. You can have all the debates. It's fine. There's a donkey. He sat on it. Okay. And he, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, this is a quote from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that Jesus um, is living out this prophetic call in anticipation of what the king will do when the king shows up, arriving from the east, entering into Jerusalem. Zechariah 9, 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, da daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's so beautiful, right? So you're like, well, Jesus wants everybody to know who he is. So he finds the donkey and he goes, right? But let's keep reading in Zechariah. There's more. Right after this verse, it says this. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you. I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now, I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. Jesus doesn't come on a war horse. He doesn't come on the big stallions that Caesar rides into town with all the pomp and circumstance or Pilate or Herod. He picks an animal that shows peace, that there won't be war. And so perhaps the reason why Jesus is weeping is because they have picked up symbols of war and said, save now. Let's do this. Let's go on in. And in some of the gospel accounts, you'll see that right after Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple, which people would have been like, yes, I knew it. Just like the Maccabees. Let's get these guys out of here, right? But Jesus weeps, knowing that this is not how peace will come. That he's taking away the weapons of war. And he's coming and entering in humbly on a donkey into Jerusalem. Who is this king that we beg to save us? Do we know him? Do we know what he's leading us to? Do we know what he desires? I think there's great irony in that call, save please, save please. 
they have an idea in their head, don't they, that whole crowd? They have a strict idea in their head of what they think that means. That means you're going to make Rome go and we're going to be able to be in charge again. Self-rule. Save, please, now. Save. But indeed, that was deeply their heart. Please save us. Save us from the things that we all need saving from. Don't we need saving now too? And I think so many times, many of us are overwhelmed by the news. I am overwhelmed by the news. Maybe you're not. I find that it is so overwhelming that I can't even look anymore. That I can't even read the stories of what's coming out of Ukraine or coming out of Afghanistan or or coming out of Ethiopia or, or coming out of Sudan or coming from our own border, or coming from our own capital, or watching even the sky turn orange, or reading the IPCC report again this week about how we're out of time. And I get overwhelmed. And I think the solutions that I am begging for, and I want a lot of those solutions, by the way, and I can list all the things that I think would help, particularly with the climate crisis, but and all of the, all of the other things, the racial justice and peace and all the things that we want to work for. But ultimately, my cry is much bigger than that, isn't it? I want to be saved from my quick solutions, from the ideas that I have of what peace looks like, because honestly, it's just too small. God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom he's leading us to, is so much more beautiful than any of the solutions we could imagine to the crisis that we are finding ourselves in, that we're watching our children grow up in. 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, that wasn't the first time, nor will it be the last, that Jesus' followers have put their hope in nationalism and overthrow. I think we've seen people who claim Jesus trying to put their hope in that again. But that is not where our rescue will come from. And that is not who our king claims to be. As Pastor Mark showed us, this whole reason why Jesus enters in this way This is because he's turned the kingdom upside down. He's creating a kingdom where sick people get well, where hungry people are fed, where people lay down one's life for one another in service. He's creating a kingdom where the dead people rise again. And he comes in this very specific way because he wants us to know that the kingdom and that the rules for the kingdom of God are deeply important and are shifted from our own views of what success might look like or security could look like. I don't know if you heard what Pastor Mark said, but this is what he emailed to me this week, and I'm just so grateful that our kids are with him. Spark kids are not only learning a gospel of personal salvation, but we also focus on the good news of the already but not yet kingdom of God, where everything's flipped upside down and love, not force, sets the rules of engagement. And Passion Week is an illustration of what that kingdom of God looks like as compared to the kingdoms we create for ourselves. Jesus' words and deeds lead to a personal liberation, yes, but even more than that, He establishes a new way of living that can set our families, our communities, our friends, our enemies, and our world free. Palm Sunday is a prelude, a mark of his identity and credentials before his ultimate presentation of kingdom living. Aren't you so glad he's teaching our kids? You guys, we should all go in there. You'll learn a lot. It's really good. We're actually looking for volunteers, so please come and help. 
Through Palm Sunday, we see Jesus's heart on display. We see the upside down kingdom on display. We see the pursuing radical love of Jesus on display as we will deeply dive into in our study of John. And so, Spark, I want to ask you to join me as we pray, save please. Save us please, God. Save us, Jesus, from our ideas of what security looks like. Save us please from the structures of injustice that we are part of, that we are complicit in. Save us, please. Where and how and from whom will our rescue come? Our rescue comes from Jesus. He is the one who will set us free. And I hope you'll dive, come back and continue our study of John with all of our amazing teachers here at Spark as we pursue. As we think of that rescue, that covenant of his blood echoed in Zechariah 9, the laying down of Jesus' life, we turn our hearts now towards Jesus' table. This is not our table. This is not our blood. This is not our body. It's his. And he welcomes all to it. For the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.